Welcome to Israel Week in Review with your host, Ben Ronsman. Today is Sunday, July 18th. This program brings you a breakdown of the week's news from Israel. We go behind the headlines to offer listeners in-depth understanding and context to help you understand Israel and the broader Middle East. Israel Week in Review is brought to you by Origin Story Marketing. Search engine optimization is essential in today's business environment. To learn more about how Origin Story Marketing can help customers find your business, visit originstorymarketing.com. Tisha B'Av commemorated in Israel. The traditional mourning day of Tisha B'Av, the ninth of the Hebrew month of Av, began at sundown on Saturday evening and ended at sundown on Sunday. This day is one of mourning for the destruction of both the first and second temples, as well as other tragedies in Judaism's long history. Tens of thousands of worshippers filled the Western Wall Plaza, where most worshippers sat on the ground, a posture representing mourning. The biblical books of Lamentations, Eicha, and Jab, Eov, were read and mourning dirges called Kinot were sung. On Sunday morning, over 1,700 Jews ascended to the Temple Mount, Haram al-Sharif, via the Mugrabi Bridge. According to the status quo agreement entered into with the Waqf, the Islamic charitable foundation that administers both the Al-Aqsa Mosque and the Dome of the Rock, Jews and other non-Muslims are permitted to enter the religious compound plaza, although neither the Dome of the Rock or the Al-Aqsa Mosque themselves. In the immediate aftermath of the 1967 Six-Day War, Defense Minister Moshe Dayan came to an agreement with the Waqf that allowed non-Muslims to ascend to the plaza atop the Temple Mount Haram al-Sharif, but forbade prayer on the site. This status quo agreement has often led to tensions with Jewish visitors. In the past, the banning of non-Muslim prayer was strictly enforced, and there were instances of visitors being forcibly removed for merely quoting biblical verses. However, in a report on Israel's Channel 12 News, religious affairs reporter Yair Sherki has filmed the regular prayer quorum that quietly meets on the plaza without interference by Israeli police. This may indicate an unofficial change in the status quo agreement, or at least an attempt to change the status quo. On Sunday morning, a group of Muslim worshippers confronted both non-Muslim visitors and Israeli police. The Israeli police were able to quell the disturbance with no protesters being reported injured. Later on Sunday, Prime Minister Naftali Bennett released a statement where he thanked Israeli police for acting with self-restraint while simultaneously preserving religious freedom for both Muslims and Jews. This immediately raised concerns amongst Muslim observers, who noted that according to the Israeli status quo agreement in place since 1967, Jews do not have freedom of religion at the site. The earlier disturbance and Bennett's statements were condemned by Egypt, Jordan, Turkey, the Palestinian Authority, and even the Ram Party and the Israeli coalition. Hamas released a strange statement talking about how straying herds of settlers actually demonstrate Israeli weakness rather than strength. Prime Minister Naftali Bennett later released a mild correction, stating that he misspoke and should have said freedom of movement rather than freedom of worship. His retraction was somewhat subdued. Freedom of worship on the Temple Mount had been an issue that his Yamina party supported while campaigning. On Saturday evening, a reading of the Book of Lamentations, organized by the American-based conservative movement, was held at the controversial egalitarian prayer plaza. It was interrupted by protesters, mostly Orthodox teens. They began loudly singing songs in order to drown out the egalitarian group's prayers. They also brought a dividing wall, known as a mechitza, to separate men's and women's sections. One of the most distinctive elements of conservative and reform practice is the lack of separation between men and women during prayer. The Western Wall, Kotel Hamaravi, is run according to Orthodox practice, and the conservative and reform movement are demographically quite small in Israel. Compared to their primacy in the United States, very few Israelis align themselves with the non-Orthodox streams of Judaism. The disruptions to prayer were condemned by Israel's president and foreign minister. 
the opening of a non-Orthodox prayer plaza near the Western Wall has been a contentious issue in Israel. The previous government of Benjamin Netanyahu had initially agreed to its construction, but opposition from ultra-Orthodox political parties in the previous coalition ultimately torpedoed the agreement. The current government has indicated that constructing the egalitarian prayer plaza with the cooperation of the largely American reform and conservative movements is a coalition priority. Protests against the Palestinian Authority continue in Ramallah. The protests have continued since Palestinian activist and PA critic Nizar Banat was killed while in PA custody June 24th. The Palestinian Authority has been quite fearful that protests will spiral out of its control. Indeed, the protesters are demanding the Mahmoud Abbas resign and allow elections to be held. The lack of democratic norms, financial corruption, and suppression of dissent were some of the major complaints leveled at the PA by the now deceased activist Nizar Banat. The Palestinian Authority has asked Israel to provide it with riot control gear in order to suppress protests that spiral out of control. The PA has appointed a commission of inquiry into the case, but this commission has been criticized by Mr. Banat's family. They've stated that they do not believe that it will be impartial. The family has also stated that the PA has approached them with an offer of a financial settlement if they would help calm the situation down. Thus far, they have refused. The PA is perhaps at the lowest point in its popularity. Mahmoud Abbas is serving the 17th year of his four-year term. He has also canceled elections recently, largely due to the surging popularity of his rival, Hamas. Mr. Abbas is 85 years old and has reported some health issues in recent years. His party, Fatah, has no obvious successor on the horizon. Fatah and the PA are also seen as corrupt. It is reported that Mr. Abbas and his family are worth over $100 million. The Palestinian Authority is also increasingly condemned in Palestinian society for its security coordination with Israel. U.S. President Joe Biden's representative handling the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, Hadi Amr, visited the region last week where he met with both Palestinian and Israeli representatives. Mr. Amr has urged Israel to assist the Palestinian Authority. He has stated that he has never seen them weaker. The PA is suffering a profound crisis of legitimacy and is highly unpopular amongst Palestinians. The Palestinian economy is still ailing from the fallout from the COVID-19 pandemic. Moreover, Israel's recent conflict with Hamas forces in the Gaza Strip has further eroded support for the PA, while dramatically boosting support for Hamas. Lebanese Prime Minister-designate Saad Hariri resigns. Saad Hariri, the Lebanese Prime Minister-designate, has resigned. This brings further uncertainty to a country experiencing complete political deadlock, an economic collapse, and a deterioration of public services so severe that much of the country is without electricity for up to 22 hours per day. The country has not had a government since caretaker Prime Minister Hassan Diab resigned in the wake of last year's massive port explosion. This explosion killed over 200 people, injured thousands, and inflicted over $3 billion of property damage to the already beleaguered country. Lebanon has historically been riven by deep ethno-religious tensions that have previously resulted in brutal civil war. The strongest force within the country is the Lebanese-backed Shia group, Hezbollah. Their military strength far outweighs that of the Lebanese state and military. Saad Hariri, the recently resigned prime minister, was amongst the leaders of the March 14th Alliance. This is a coalition that seeks to end Syrian and Iranian control of the country. His father, Rafiq Hariri, was a former prime minister who was assassinated by what most observers believe were pro-Syrian forces. Saad Hariri resigned after yet another failed negotiation with Lebanese president Michel Aoun. Lebanon has a confessional system of government where the president must be a Maronite Christian, the prime minister a Sunni Muslim, and the speaker of the parliament a Shia. 
Nonetheless, Mr. Aoun represents a minority faction within Maronite Christian society that avowedly supports both Syria and Iran. The impasse between the pro-Iranian and anti-Iranian camps is the primary cause for the government's inability to form a coalition. Before Hariri's announcement, the Lebanese lira had already declined over 90%. The currency's value has dropped even further since. Food, fuel, and medicine are scarce throughout the country. Electricity and water are also being rationed. Many people believe that the country is at the edge of a steep precipice. They fear that the country could once again descend into internecine warfare and perhaps even be fully overrun by Iranian proxy Hezbollah. Financial news. OPEC reaches production agreement after Saudi-UAE disagreement. OPEC, the intergovernmental organization or cartel, composed of 13 of the largest oil-producing nations on Earth, has reached a production agreement. This agreement was reached after disagreements between the cartel's unofficial leader, Saudi Arabia, and its formerly reliable ally, the United Arab Emirates, were brought out into the open. Petroleum industry experts believe that the UAE feels that we are entering the world's last petroleum boom. The UAE seeks to sell a great deal of its oil in order to maximize its profits before the country transitions to a post-petroleum economy. Saudi Arabia is more reticent and had hoped to keep exports a bit lower. In typical OPEC fashion, they met somewhere in the middle. The cartel will boost output by 400,000 barrels a day beginning in August. The compromise agreement will allow the UAE and other countries higher baselines against which production cuts are measured. Historically, the United Arab Emirates has largely deferred to Saudi Arabia on foreign policy. However, it has increasingly taken more independent positions. Most notably, this includes the Emirati embrace of the Abraham Accords and strong bilateral ties with Israel. However, this is not the only area where the Emirates' foreign policy has strayed from those of Saudi Arabia. While the Emiratis are highly suspicious of Iran and its foreign policy objectives, they maintain trade relations with the Shia Islamic Republic. In fact, quite a bit of bilateral trade takes place between Abu Dhabi and Tehran. This is in distinction to Saudi Arabia, which has placed a very aggressive sanctions regimen on the Iranian economy. The United Arab Emirates initially fully supported the Saudi war against the Iranian-backed Houthi rebels in Yemen. While the Emirates is very much still allied with the Saudis, beginning in early 2020, the Emiratis developed a more independent policy. This policy allowed for a drawdown of military forces and a more strategic use of regional proxies. Alternately, the Emiratis have increased their activity in a group of highly strategic islands that straddle the Bab el-Mandeb. These are the straits between the Horn of Africa and Yemen. They have built significant air bases on a number of uninhabited islands that nonetheless can be used to guard naval traffic into and out of the Red Sea. These military installations will almost certainly be used to ensure that trade with Egypt, Saudi Arabia, and Israel remains unimpeded. The UAE has also made energy overtures to Israel and tried to push forward discussions about building an oil pipeline from the Israeli port of Eilat to the Mediterranean port of Ashdod. This would allow the Emirates to circumvent the Suez Canal and bring their oil directly to the European market. Significantly, the UAE has invested in Israel's offshore natural gas installations. They will almost certainly be interested in a discussed natural gas pipeline to Greece. Israel's cooperation with a major Arab oil-producing nation would have seemed completely fantastical a few short years ago. Nonetheless, this will have major, even tectonic ramifications for Israel's economy and energy policy. Defense news. U.S. building combined joint operations center in Israel. 
In an additional benefit from the much-lauded Abraham Accords, the United States has been able to move military-to-military engagement and defense planning with Israel from U.S.-European Command to U.S. Central Command, often shortened to CENTCOM. The U.S. military operates a unified command plan that encompasses the entire globe, giving the U.S. military a truly global reach. There are 11 unified combatant commands encompassing every region of the earth. In the past, military-to-military contacts between Israel and the United States took place under the auspices of the U.S.-European Command, even though Israel is very much geographically in the Middle East. This was because Israel was in a state of belligerency with most of the nations in the CENTCOM region. This is no longer the case. Israel has peace agreements with Egypt, Jordan, the UAE, and Bahrain. It already has well-established, albeit informal, governmental contacts and military arrangements with Saudi Arabia, Oman, and the semi-autonomous Kurdish region of Iraq. In July, the United States began construction of a combined joint operations center in Israel, specifically on the Hatzor Air Base, east of Ashdod. It is estimated that over 150 American and Israeli military personnel will operate out of this facility. This will be the nerve center for the U.S. and Israel's military coordination under the auspices of CENTCOM. Editorial, Cultural Profile, Tisha B'Av Sunday, July 18th, 2021, corresponds with Tisha B'Av in the Jewish calendar. The ninth of the month of Av is a day fraught with foreboding, memories of disaster and communal mourning in collective Jewish memory. The rabbinic tradition records that both the first and second temples were destroyed on this date. The first temple was destroyed by the Neo-Babylonian Empire in 587 before the Common Era. Large parts of the city of Jerusalem were destroyed at this time, and much of the population was deported and exiled to Babylon, beginning the first Babylonian exile. 585 years later, the rebuilt temple was destroyed once again. The second temple, or Beit HaMittash HaSheni, was destroyed by the Romans in 70 of the Common Era. This happened in the context of the Jewish revolt against the Roman Empire. This mourning over the lost Jewish temples makes a claim on the Jewish present. Lacrimose prayers and sorrowful lamentations are offered at what may be the most contentious piece of real estate anywhere on earth. Muslim Jerusalemites, of course, are aware of this date in the Jewish calendar. Violent disturbances were expected on Harabayit Haram al-Sharif. Thankfully, there were no injuries or deaths reported. These occurrences have been happening with troubling regularity in the past few months. As if the situation was not tense enough, Tisha B'Av falls two days before the Muslim holiday of Eid al-Fitr, one of Islam's two main festivals. The Islamic calendar is unique in that it is a purely lunar calendar without the interpolation of leap days or additional months. The Western or Gregorian calendar adds a leap day in February every four years. The Jewish calendar adds a leap month seven times in a 19-year cycle. These 13-month years are referred to as Shana Meuberet, or pregnant years. In contrast, the Islamic calendar does not add any months or days. This means that the solar and lunar years do not fully align. Consequently, the Islamic holidays fall 11 days earlier in relation to the Gregorian calendar each year. Islamic festivals migrate throughout the months and seasons. Ramadan, Eid al-Adha, and Eid al-Fitr all fall one Gregorian month earlier, approximately every three years. What I mean to say here is that Eid al-Fitr and Tisha B'Av rarely align in this way. Traditional Jewish belief holds that the rebuilding of the temple and the restoration of the sacrificial system will take place in the future. This is very much central to Judaism's eschatological vision. Indeed, Jewish prayer is structured to mirror the thrice-daily sacrificial offerings made in the temple. Explicit calls for the restoration of the temple are mentioned throughout Jewish liturgy. This palpable sense of loss of the temple and the associated loss of closeness with God is part of the fabric of Judaism. 
Tisha B'Av is the day that is cosmically aligned with this tragedy, and by extension other tragedies that have befallen the Jewish people. The rabbis of the Mishnah speak of five great calamities associated with Tisha B'Av. The first calamity referenced by the rabbis occurred in the Book of Numbers, Sefer B'Midbar. This event was seen as the archetype of all subsequent calamities. In this inauspicious biblical event, ten of the twelve spies that were sent to Canaan by Moses brought back negative reports about the land of Israel. This caused panic and despair amongst the people. God was said to curse this day in perpetuity for the Jewish nation. The next two calamities were the destruction of the first and second temples, mentioned earlier. Traditionally, it is believed that the destruction of these temples took place on Tisha B'Av. A subsequent revolt, known as the Bar Kokhba Rebellion, took place in 135 of the Common Era. While the temple had already been destroyed by this time, a large Jewish community still lived in the land of Israel. This Jewish community coalesced around a messianic revolutionary named Bar Kokhba. Despite the belief by some rabbis, notably Rabbi Akiva, that Bar Kokhba may have been the awaited Messiah, this revolt was brutally suppressed by the Romans. It is said that the last city under Jewish control, Beitar, was laid waste and the revolt definitively suppressed on Tisha B'Av. The fifth calamity was also related to the Roman repression. It is said that the Roman commander, Turnus Rufus, utterly destroyed the remnants of the temple on Tisha B'Av, crushing all hopes of Jewish independence for two millennia. These five calamities are all mentioned in the Mishnah as reasons for mourning and fasting. However, Jewish history is replete with a number of other tragedies that have all occurred on Tisha B'Av or in the days preceding it. This includes the launching of the First Crusade in 1096, which led to the destruction of the Jewish communities of France and the Rhineland. The Jewish community of England was expelled on Tisha B'Av in 1290 and France in 1306. The Alhambra decree issued by the Spanish monarchy ordered that all Jews needed to either convert, be expelled, or be killed by July 31, 1492, which happened to coincide that year with Tisha B'Av. Germany entered World War I on Tisha B'Av 1914. The launching of the 20th century's First World War set in motion a series of events that caused massive death and dislocation, and ultimately led to the formation of the Soviet Union and the Second World War. On August 2, 1941, corresponding to Tisha B'Av once again, Heinrich Himmler formally received approval for the final solution for the Jewish people. One year later, on Tisha B'Av in 1942, the mass deportations of Jews from the Warsaw Ghetto to the Treblinka death camp took place. This sense of doom and cosmic foreboding has not ceased. On this day in 1994, the Iranians bombed and destroyed the Amiya Jewish Community Center in Buenos Aires, killing 85 and wounding hundreds. This crime remains an open wound amongst Argentinian Jews. Later, in one of the most tone-deaf decisions in Israeli government history, the government of Ariel Sharon initiated the Israeli disengagement from the Gaza Strip, uprooting 21 settlements in Gaza and four in the West Bank. 8,000 Jews were forcibly removed from their homes in a process that began on Tisha B'Av. To this day, some members of the national religious community in Israel recite kinot, or traditional lamentation poetry, written to commemorate this loss. Different religious communities have written various kinot commemorating other historic losses. Among many Haredi Jews, the tragedy of the Holocaust is often commemorated on Tisha B'Av rather than on Yom HaShoah, or Holocaust Remembrance Day. Earlier in the state's history, before such holidays as Yom HaShoah, Holocaust Remembrance Day, and Yom HaZikaron, Israeli Memorial Day, had fully developed and become embedded in Israeli culture, there were some calls to make Tisha B'Av the official Israeli Day of Mourning for the Holocaust and Memorial Day. Interestingly, Prime Minister Menachem Begin was an advocate for combining these holidays. His suggestion was ultimately never enacted. Despite, or perhaps because of, Tisha B'Av's association with tragedy, the day holds an important place within Jewish mysticism. There is a strong Jewish tradition that Tisha B'Av will be the birth date of the Messiah. This notion of the relationship between tragedy and redemption 
Impurity versus purity and sin versus commandment is an underlying current in much mystical thought. There is the idea that at the advent of the messianic era, Tisha B'Av will cease to be a fast day and will ultimately become a feast day. It is interesting to note that the most successful messianic claimant in Jewish history, with the notable exception of Jesus of Nazareth, was Shabtai Tzvi. This man, who created a messianic fervor across the Jewish world, claimed to have been born on Tisha B'Av in 1626. Interestingly, one of the mystical and antinomian practices that Shabbatai Tzvi engaged in was turning Tisha B'Av into a ritualized feast. Nonetheless, it must be said that Tisha B'Av observance is by no means universal in Israel. In fact, over half of all Israelis largely pay no mind to Tisha B'Av at all. They consider it just another day. In many cities around Israel, restaurants and cafes are officially required to shut on the evening of Tisha B'Av. However, enforcement is rather lax, and even those restaurants that are cited are quite willing to pay a rather small fine that is far outweighed by the revenue from staying open. Approximately one-third of the Jewish-Israeli population observe this morning day in full accordance with Jewish law or halacha. This means that from sunset to sunset, a full 25 hours, all eating and drinking is prohibited. There are also prohibitions against washing and bathing, applying creams and oils, wearing leather shoes, and engaging in sexual relations. The biblical book of Lamentations, and in some communities the book of Job, is read in synagogue. Many worshippers sit on the ground rather than in chairs. Devotees also recite religious lamentation poetry, kinot. An additional 8% of Israelis commemorate the morning day in some form or fashion. This means that they may drink water, but not eat, or fast for part of the day. Collectively, a significant minority of Israeli Jews commemorate Tisha B'Av. Still, the fact remains that over half of Jewish Israelis view Tisha B'Av as just another day. Compared to the post-independence holidays of Yom HaShoah, Holocaust Memorial Day, and Yom HaZikaron, Israeli Memorial Day, Tisha B'Av is less universally observed. Of course, this may be because the observance of Tisha B'Av is quite difficult and uncomfortable. But I suspect that part of the reason is also because the loss of the temple in Jerusalem nearly 2,000 years ago does not have the same immediacy amongst contemporary Jews as the loss of Israeli soldiers or the murder of European Jewry. Only 9% of Israeli Jews consider Yom HaShoah just another day and 5% of Jewish Israelis feel this way about Yom HaZikaron. Of those Israelis who do feel this way, a substantial number of them come from Haredi communities with a deep suspicion of the state and a reluctance to participate in the collective civic culture of Israel. Nonetheless, many in this community mourn these losses on the traditional mourning day, Tisha B'Av. So Tisha B'Av is a holiday that is developed into an observance, primarily undertaken by Orthodox or religiously traditional Israelis. Many secular-minded Israelis eschew the holiday almost entirely. Certainly when one compares this to Passover, Pesach, where over 93% of Jewish Israelis attend a Seder, it is clear that Tisha B'Av is not a universal Jewish-Israeli experience. Nonetheless, the holiday retains its resonance with a strong minority of Israeli Jews, approximately 40%, who fall within the orthodox to traditional spectrum. The association with tragedy and loss make it unique in the Jewish calendar. However, it is the association with the Temple in Jerusalem that gives the holiday its continued significance as events in the last few months continue to demonstrate that Temple Mount Haram al-Sharif is a potent symbol of both Jewish and Palestinian Muslim history, identity, and aspirations. The association with historic trauma gives this day an air of tragedy and even danger, and the mystical associations of the holiday imbue it with a latent redemptive power. This has been Ben Ronsman from Israel Week in Review. We go behind the headlines to provide you with insight and understanding of the news from Israel and the broader Middle East. Israel Week in Review has been brought to you through the generous support of Origin Story Marketing, helping your business find its customers through search engine optimization. For a complimentary consultation, visit originstorymarketing.com.